What's up, everybody? It's Soren Baker here on Unique Access with Soren Baker. Hope you're having a great day, and thank you for listening. Now, today, we have a special episode. This is somebody that I've been growing up and listening to, more or less, since I was just turned a teenager. And this is Sed G from Ultramagnetic MCs. Now, Sed G is an amazing rapper and producer with a very particular distinctive style, both production-wise and as a rapper. But... The conversation is much more than that. He dropped some bombshells about what he believes happened to Scott LaRock, that fact that he thinks he was assassinated. Sedgi also talks about his production work on Boogie Down Productions' landmark album, Criminal Minded. He talks about his group, Ultramagnetic MCs, passing on the Def Jam recordings deal. Schooly D, my favorite rapper, Sedgi talks about him being an anomaly. He also talks about why he should not have produced Tim Dog's LP and how Salt and Pepper's success cost Ultramagnetic MC some opportunities. Now, on top of all of that, he also talks about disliking Ultramagnetic MC's Funk Your Head Up album and also how the saga of Dandy, The Devil, and Day needed to be done. This is an amazing conversation with said G. I'm very excited for y'all to hear it. So without further ado, here we are. Said G on Unique Access with Soren Baker. What's up, everybody? It's Soren Baker. Thank you very much for liking, subscribing, and sharing to Unique Access Entertainment. We appreciate you guys' support. And please be sure to hit that subscribe button down there so we can keep coming to y'all with these interviews, man, with some of the icons and legends of the game. And today is no exception. We have the honor and privilege of being joined by the Almighty said, G from Ultramagnetics. Thank you for coming through, sir. Peace, Mr. Baker. No problem. Yeah, man. It's an honor, man. And uh, shout out to Black Pegasus for connecting us and making sure that I had the Delta 5, the new video that's out right now. Everybody should watch it, stream it, support that online as well. And for one of the things I thought was interesting is Delta's obviously been a theme of, you know, work as ultra magnetic, but then also on your own since the beginning, basically. So why is that something that you wanted to keep going with Delta Five? Well, it's like an art project, you know, it's something that I love doing, you know. It brings a lot of pleasure to me, uh, it makes me feel rewarded. So it's something I like doing, you know. That's why I get a lot out of it. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's like now, it's, uh, feels good that it's getting the attention that it's getting. Like, uh, I didn't really think it was going to get that notice like that. But uh, that's what life is. Life is full of uh, unexpected things that happen. That's for sure. And uh, one of the things, one of the other themes was uh, the referencing was science and brain frequencies and all these different types of things. That's a hallmark of your lyrics as well. And one of the many things that we'll get into today, but that I've always enjoyed was that you sonically and lyrically were willing to stretch things to, to new domains per se. So is that just a natural, how does that come? Is that a natural thing? Is that something you seek? Yeah. See, that's the thing. Uh, Delta is dealing with time once again. Uh, and when you're dealing with time, you can't get locked in a specific time. And that's what a lot of artists and fans even tend to do. They get locked and they can't move beyond. So that's why when you go through the series of deltas, 
there's always a different approach. Uh, even though on this one, I kind of went retro on the second verse, but there's always a different approach, you know, a different, a different uh, flow, you know. So it's just, you try, I try to match time periods that don't exist, you know, that that's maybe upcoming, you know, <laughs> like a kid uh, in, uh, in the year 2080 might pick up Delta, Delta three, <laughs> you know, and say, wow, this is hot, you know, so that's what it's about, you know, and that's been the thing with ultramagnetic is that uh, the stuff kind of overlaps, <clears throat> like the styles are never played out because it was never, you know, the, what people considered the norm. So therefore it can stand in any time period, you know. Right. Well, that, that too, on uh, since you mentioned the second verse in the flow on Delta Five, not only is it phenomenal, but I think it's uh, it you know harkens back to the old era, but it still sounds like something that people are doing today. And that I think, to your point, is the timelessness of the Delta ness. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the whole point. You know, you want to take it like even when you go retro, and I, I want to incur a lot of uh, you know uh my peers because what happens is uh they do stuff retro and it's too retro you know this isn't 86 anymore this isn't the 90s anymore uh there's a sonic level of, of excellence out here now where we're not talking about the music we're talking about the way it's produced and uh from our era we didn't use a lot of effects there was a reason for that. The effects weren't very good for rap records. They sounded fake. The effects in this day and age are massively better. You know, they sound real. So don't be scared to touch the effects. You know, the kids like that good dimensional cleanliness they're hearing and what these artists considered garbage music, but, but it's an appreciation because of the quality that is made at uh, the level is mixed at and these are the things that uh <clears throat> a lot of people from my era are not uh adapting to they still think you can mix a record sonically like you did back in the 90s and it's it's, it's crazy now with with boogie down productions and criminal minded uh i know you've talked about it but what specifically did you do versus what scott did versus what karis one versus what d nice did to create the sounds and the beats and the music on that album? Well, what happened was like, uh, it was like uh, either Chris or Scott will have the idea and it would be either me or D nice who actually produced it. You know, like, uh, like for instance, the P is free. That's well, wow. We got a story <laughs> because actually the P is free wasn't even for Chris. Like, you know, Boogie Down Productions was was more than just KRS-One. So there was an artist, one of KRS's old partners who we don't talk about for whatever reason, but uh, Scott had promised him he was going to, you know, do a joint for him. So we were in the studio and this dude, he kept hounding Scott. Yo, you never take care. So Scott gave me the, the Yellow Man record and he said, said, you can do something with this. I took it. 
and I put the PS3 beat together in like 10 minutes. So the kid went in the booth and he laid down his lyrics. They were, they were okay, but it was nothing to knock you out. So Chris had that look in his eyes. Scott had that look in the eyes. They looked at each other's. They went to the corner and started talking. Then they brought me in the meeting. They said, he said, we're going to let him finish. But when he finished, Chris going to go in and, and do, <laughs> do what he does. So it became a Chris record. But that's how it was. They would have an idea. They would bring it to me. So the only thing that I didn't touch was uh, I didn't do South Bronx. Didn't do my nine millimeter. I didn't do elementary and criminal minded. Those four, I didn't do anything on. But everything else, I, you know, did my magic like poetry. You know, that was a James Brown record. I chopped it up. See, I would take it and make it more than what the record was. That's what I did. Otherwise, it would just be their production. If I did exactly, you know, if I just took the record and I looped it, then I, I was just merely an engineer. I was a guy who knew how to work the machine. That's all. That's what a lot of people get uh, confused later on. Like uh, there was an argument about uh, Eric B as president who produced it because, you know, Eric B had the original idea of uh, over like a fat rap with funky president. But Marley took it and he used the impeached president drums and he played the keyboard by hand. So it's they both produced it. But see, one wants to take the credit from the other. You know, you understand? Because without Eric's idea, Marley would have never done that. But without Marley implementing those different sounds, maybe the record isn't as impactful as it was. We don't know. So it's a collective thing. So that's what it was. It was a collective thing where they would give me the ideas. I would chop it up and rearrange it. And then Scott will overall all of it. You know, he'll say, this is how you, you know, he will arrange everything. So it was, it was a good package. Well, it's, uh, that leads me to several questions. But it's interesting because, uh, you know, the dramatic change that uh, the group had, obviously, once Scott got killed. But for you, that up to that point in 86, 87, with sonically your stuff being so hard but then the ones that you didn't do had the lyrically especially the super harder lyrics so how how and why do you think it ended up to where those super harder songs you weren't on whereas a lot of your other stuff was super hard sonically and forceful like that that's life i mean that's stuff you can't control you know it just happens you know but uh uh, it is what it is. And once again, it's it's the labels. Uh, Chris and Scott was on a, a a label where it was ran by criminals. B-Boy Records? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the end, they assassinated Scott. Yeah, that was assassination. You know, the shooter was in place. He was on the roof. They had this cat in the car named Robocop. He was an ex-bouncer at the Latin Quarters. The beef was squashed. For no reason, he got out of the... He was told, he was given orders to make sure there's an incident for this guy to shoot. Beef was squashed. Everybody was laughing, having fun. He got out of the Jeep and slapped the kid for no reason. They got in the car. 
bullets fly. The only one who gets hit is Scott. Bunch of people in the Jeep, five or six guys in the Jeep. Scott's the only one who gets hit. No bullets, holes anywhere else. He was targeted. Why? Jive was offering the label a buyout for the group. Warner Brothers wasn't. Scott had two deals in place. See, my boy Chris, I love Chris. You know, he's one of the arguably greatest MCs of all times, but Chris is very egotistical, very dramatic. He likes to just make up stuff for entertainment values. And there's nothing wrong with that because it increases your love affair with your fans. But Chris will make you believe that he got the deal with Jive. Totally false. Sky had two deals in place, Warner Brothers and Jive. Jive was offering more upfront money. Why? Because Jive with Zomba Music took all of your publishing. You got no publishing. <laughs> Warner Brothers was given less money because they was given 100% publishing to the group. Now, me and Chris didn't understand that at that time. All we knew was your points from your royalties, which in the long run turned out to be the, the trash of the deal, <laughs> that the publishing was the real money. But Scott was so far ahead of us. So Chris, being that he was in the man shelter, he wanted the more money because he was at job. So he didn't know the label was going to go to that extent to get rid of Scott. You know, he had no idea of that, but he wanted to go with Jive, you know, and I wanted to sign with Jive too, because in the, in the overall, the way it was going to be was ultra magnetic was going to become part of Boogie Down Productions. Scott was like my big brother. And he was like, yo, Eddie's not doing right. Roll, we're going to, you know, take care of this. I got the big production deal lined up. So they got Scott out of the way. The label got their money. Chris took the stuff over and finished it up with Jive and, and started BDP over there. And the rest of that was history. But they got him out of the way because Warner Brothers told them to go wipe their ass with a piece of tissue before they get anything out of them. And the contract was trash. So they knew they was getting nothing. So they said, we get Scott out the way, being that Seth and Chris want to go with want or Jive, that'll happen. And that's what happened. Wow. Yeah. It was assassination. Oh, the guy who smacked the kid for no reason disappeared, got out of town after it. Got out of town. Never heard from again. Never heard from again. Wow. Disappeared before any police questioning everything. They got him out of town. Wow. See? That's crazy. crazy. Never heard from again. Nobody knows he's alive, whatever. Man. You blow my mind right now. This is so sad. Yeah. That's crazy. But that's what happens when you deal with criminals because, see, that was the whole problem with the whole thing. Scott knew they were criminals, and he tried to prepare me for them. He was like, uh, after we did the album, he was like, he will come. See, it's my fault for what happened on the album with the, with the crediting. Scott would tell me, said, did you go and make sure they say, uh, produced by Boogie Down Productions and said, gee, 
did you go and tell him? I was like, yeah. You know, I, I did tell him once. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we got you, said We got you. He's like, yo, you got to stay on them every day because they don't want to pay you. They're going to try to put it where you don't get paid. I already heard them talking. Wow. He said, stay in their ass, stay in their ass. And I didn't. And, and to be honest, uh, they did pay me. But guess how much they gave me a check for? When this album was sizzling, he met me just before Christmas. You know, he called me, said, said, I got you. I got you. I got your check. Meet me down. You know, we met down on Canal Street. Something I'm about to get broken off, you know, 20, 30 G's. Guess how much the check was for? Just take a guess. 500. I wish it was $250. Wow. He said, hey, the album isn't really selling. It's a lot of hype behind it. <laughs> we know it's a, a bunch of shit because we had guys at stores telling us they needed to reorder. Well, I'm going to tell you, too, and I'm sure you know this, but I'm from Maryland, man, and down in D.C., they were remaking 9 Millimeter as a go-go song. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But, uh, album cuts. <laughs> I got 250 out of it. $250 out of for all my hard work. <laughs> Man, that's horrible. <clears throat> yeah. But uh, my brother warned me. I didn't take heed to what he was saying. So, you know, it's partially on me. He said, stay in there, stay in their ass. Uh, he said, he'll, he'll call me every day. Yo, did you go over there? Did you tell him? Did you tell him? I'd be like, yeah, I'm going, I'm going. And I wouldn't go. Wow. I thought, you know, I took it that they were men in their words, you know. So then, man, we could talk for four hours about all this. Um, the crazy thing is then, so was the, so you think that the whole argument with D-Nice and the girl, is that all like staged, all of it? It might have been, I don't think so. I think there was an argument. And what happened, like I said, see, the dudes were criminals, so we was, Especially them, they was practically living at the office. You hear what I'm saying? So if they're in the office and they're talking about, you know, like right now we could be talking about beef and somebody's in here, they hear about it. Yeah, says having a problem. So they orchestrated it all. See, they knew Scott. They knew because I was telling Scott to leave the whole shit alone because they was getting ready to play in the Fresh Fest like three days later at the garden. I mean, a week later. So I'm like, yo, just leave that shit alone, man. Just tell D nice, stay away from her, whatever. He like, nah, D live over there. I got to go over and squash it for him. And that's what I'm saying. This is why it wasn't fake is because Scott got out the car. The beef was real. He squashed it. Do you understand? It was done. Right. And then this guy gets out of the Jeep for no reason and smacks him. See, the dude was told to make sure something happens. Follow what I'm saying? If it was fake from the beginning, the moment he got there, they would have just shot him and then the shit would have been over, you know? Right, right. They that, we just all have a story in place. They just needed the appearance. Yeah, so they needed, and that's why they had to let the kid out of jail because how do you get smacked, run wherever, get a rifle, and run up to the roof and perfectly aim and shoot the wrong guy? The Flash couldn't do that shit. <laughs> 
So it didn't make sense. So they had to let him go. That guy was in place. It was a sniper. And see, it would have been better if they would have dressed it up, put a couple of extra bullet holes in the car. But Scott was the only one who got hit, and he got hit in the temple. That's a sniper. Yeah, that's not. That doesn't sound like an accident. Yeah, that's a sniper. You know. That's crazy. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. Like when Slick Rick had an incident at the castle years after, and when he got in his car and drove away, they were shooting at him, <clears throat> and you had a bunch of bullets. He didn't get hit, thank God, but he had a bunch of bullet holes in his car. See, so if you're just mad and you're just shooting crazy, where are the other bullet holes? Why is it just one guy? See, they was told, he was told, make sure something happens. I got you. heard it. You know, they heard what Scott was saying. Yeah, I'm going to go talk to him, D. And then they called him and said, yo, you want to make some money? We give you 10000 you know. Then you go, then we give you a ticket out of town. Right. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. You know, they hung at that office too much. You know, everybody. It was like a hangout. Right. It's it's like what happened at the old D and D studio. Uh, Primo turned D and D into a, a hangout, and then later it got wild because it was just too many people in there who weren't recording. One of the things that I was interested is I'd uh, known that you had said when you had made to give you love that you were all excited because of how great you thought it was in the studio, but when you heard it on the radio that it didn't sound as good or it just didn't meet that level of quality. So explain sonically what you heard in the studio versus what you heard when that song was getting on the radio, when it got played on the radio. Yeah, see, that was the thing and you learn when you're an upcoming producer. Uh, certain rooms were, had like soundproofing and, you know, dynamically, you know, it's like singing in your shower and then getting out your shower. It's a different sound. So we were in the studio. <clears throat> we had already was in love with the record. I think there's a real version of it the way it was out somewhere on a basement tape or somewhere. But uh, so the engineer goes, wait a minute, I got an idea. Listen to this. And he puts this gigantic reverb on it. And like I said, the effects back then was like detrimental. <laughs> like you stayed away, but it, it was toxic. But it sounded so good in that environment that we was grooving to it. And as a matter of fact, Lior Cohen was doing a session in the next room. He came in the room and asked us, was we signed? He was ready to sign us. But we thought we had a monster hit. And, you know, when you're independent, you cut the third man out. We was like, okay, uh, we, don't, we don't need you. We said, yeah, yeah, we signed, we signed. <laughs> Looking back, we can say, no, no, let's let's do the deal right here. Because uh, it wasn't even when we heard it on the radio. When you got home, it wasn't the same. But see, back then, we didn't have the levels of capabilities we have today where we can change things up in Pro Tools and stuff like that. And uh, we were on a limited budget, and the budget was up, and we had to go with it as it was.
And was this at LL and T La Rock and everything already been out on Def Jam, or what was what was the uh, time? Yeah, that was after that was out. That was okay. when they were out. But Lior walked in. That was our first meeting of Lior. He walked in and he was like, "You guys signed?" You know, he, everybody was grooving. It sounded, it sounded like if we, we could have got the record to actually sound like that, the way it did in the studio, everywhere else, we'd have been good. But unfortunately, it was only in that room. <laughs> I, I'll give you another example of that. Uh, one of my brothers, uh, Scorpio, from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, he had a solo record out. And he did it in uh, Arthur Baker's old studio. Me and DJ Red Alert was in there, and it was the greatest record we ever heard. Red was like, I'm going to ask Arthur for some some uh, acetates. I'm going to play that this weekend. And I was around the block. I was telling everybody, yo, Scorps. Scorp joint is going to smash. I was sitting by the radio, and Red played something from Scorp. So I was like, oh, that must be the B-side. I'm talking about it didn't sound nothing like it did in the studio. Like, it was like a whole nother record. Yeah. <laughs> And then at the end, so I seen Red later that week. I said, yo, why you ain't play the uh, the Scorp joint? We heard it. He said, I did. I said, we did? He said, yeah, I thought it sounded different. <laughs> I said, yeah, it sounded way different. You know, <clears throat> rooms had a way of uh, <clears throat> changing the dynamics of sounds. And like I said, for people out there who really don't understand, and it's the equivalent of like when you're singing in the bathroom and it sounds so artistically good then you sing out on the regular space and it's a whole nother dynamic. So that's the closest way to put it. Right. And then uh, from those days up till now with being a DJ in that background, what, uh, cause a lot of, of course, great producers in rap were DJs and still are for you. What effect do you think being a DJ before you got into producing has had on your career? Uh, well, that got you into the beats. Because, like, uh, when I used to go to the parties, you know, and I'd be listening to, like, the Cold Crush or Fantastic Five or Flashing Them, Theodore, I would get into the beats before the MCs. Because, as we know, that, uh, well, a lot of us don't know, the MCs were late to the game of what, what people now call hip-hop. And they supported the DJ. <laughs> yeah, it was always about the beats. The beats. So I went to the beats first. Now we measure your MCs. You know, how good was the DJ? How was he cutting? Was he on time? Did he have secret breaks that nobody had? You know, it was it was just different levels. But it made me beat orient. That's why when I first started rapping, I was a little lagged behind because I was so intrigued with getting the beats right I didn't really put too much time into the delivery and stuff like that and it, so it took a progression of just doing it over and over you know and I got better well it's funny you say that because the the one person that I think had some reverb that worked really well and that also had a little bit of an offbeat was Schoolie D I always thought because PSK you know, the, the reverb on that. But then also I know from knowing him and talking to him over the years, he was doing all that live. So he was slightly offbeat. But P 
PSK was like an anomaly. Like I said, effects were de detrimental. They were toxic. And when you heard PSK, you know, it was something, uh, I know Joe the Butcher engineered that record up in Studio 4 in Philly. And I told him it was like the greatest feat ever done with reverb in hip hop. Reverb never sounded so good. Like it just, and, and the thing was, no one could ever recapture that effect. People have tried and they squash it. That I don't know what happened, but they hit on some magic that day. And it, it's, it's always going to be, a, that's one of like the greatest records of all times. You know, just that, you know, that everything was exploding. And then he just dropped on time. It's, it's a classic. It's a classic. Yeah, it's a phenomenal record. And not in many ways, but those are two of the ways that you guys reminded me of each other a little bit. So I wish Joe would have just give you love. <laughs> <laughs> might be having might be having a different conversation then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So speaking of that, with uh Leor, how did you sign the next plateau before you saw him again? Or what happened in between? Well what happened was like I said, that was that was out of uh me and Mo Love was my, you know, he's my blood cousin. So that was basically out of everybody's pockets. Everybody had chipped in uh, money to make that project happen. So uh, we actually had the record in the stores and it wasn't nothing happening. And, you know, everybody was down, you know, it's like, why you didn't leave it the way it was? And it was on me. So I felt obligated to do better. So uh, I was at a uh, hip-hop party around my old block on the 9 on, in Washington Avenue in the BX. And uh, it was funny because they were playing music in a spot they normally don't play music at around there. They was playing uh, in front of um, one of my brothers in hip hop, Easy AD, they was playing in front of his building, that little park where, you know, people from around that way knows where it is. They had the basketball court and they were playing music and I was sitting down. I was almost like, I was there, but I wasn't there because I was still in a funk over the disappointment of the record. Because uh, before I even finished, when Red Alert played it at the Latin quarters, it literally, like people on the dance floor, it literally cleared the dance floor. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't want that hip hop. I mean, everybody left. It was like that. That some, you know, if it was a little bit of people. You would have felt better, but everybody. It was literally one or two people on the dance floor. Wow. So I was down on that, and the DJ, uh, I think it was my man, Lala. I'm not. I'm not. I can't really remember the DJ because, like I said, I really wasn't there. But when he put on substitution, I was like, uh-oh, you got to do something with that right away. So uh, I went back and I somehow found funds that I didn't know I <laughs> was possible. And we went back in and we did, uh, we did eagle tripping, you know. And, and first, you know, we had to find, you know, 
cool Keith's cousin. He had to go to his cousin to get the record. And, you know, then we took it in and the rest is what it was, you know. But so that's then, how it came about. Did you guys shop to Next Plateau or they came to you or how did that work? Uh, they came to us because, like I said, we were doing everything independently. So we couldn't even, this is the thing, uh, we couldn't press up Eagle Tripping. So there was no copies. And you had Red playing it, Mr. Magic played it. Every DJ was spending it and people were running to the stores. Where's the record? Where's the record? So you had a big buildup. So Red, because you know Red was our boy, Red Alert, had set up a bunch of meetings for us at a bunch of those independent labels, you know, Next Plateau, uh, Tommy Boy, but we didn't make it past Next Plateau. That's another story. Actually, ever go into it? <laughs> yeah, break it down. That's interesting. Uh, you know, so uh, you know, my boy, he became my my good friend, Eddie O'Loughlin, uh, the president of Next Plateau. He was stressing to us the urgency. We got the demand. We got to get this record out right away. And so he said, you know, we we were considering really signing there. But uh, he asked me and Mo Love to get the artwork, you know, to go on the back, you know, the credits. I mean, not artwork, the credits, you know. And uh, when we came back in the office, Cool Keith had already signed the contract. <laughs> wow. So it was like, Oh well, <laughs> and we signed, and that, that's we didn't make it to any other label. We just took it right there, and he he got it to his word. He got it out like it was literally out in two days. I don't know how he pulled that off because the pressing plants they have like an order, right? So I guess he probably you know greased them a little bit more or something. I don't know, but he got the record out there in two days. So then, did you guys sign? Because uh, I know this was, of course, in the era, in the 86 era, was there weren't that many albums coming out yet in rap. You guys were right at the end of that, where we see the explosion in 87, 88 with albums. But did you sign initially a single deal with the option for an album, or did you sign a straight everything? It was a straight singles deal. Okay. And, uh, that was the thing. Uh, we did so many singles. You know, we did the part two, we did Funky. We did I mean, it's a bunch. Yeah. We did so many singles, but by the time we was supposed to do the album, if we had used all the singles, there would have been no new music. That's <laughs> how many singles we had had. Yeah, we were the king of the singles. You know, we would do, see, it was a special era. And that's why, like the special, there, you had two special eras in rap, really that people don't focus on because they deal with the more commercial times of, of what people call rap. The first was when there were no records, you know, and you just had to be fly. And somehow people in Tokyo would know about the Cold Crush brothers. You understand what kind of talent you have to have for your cassette to move state to state, state to state, and then start going international. That's special. People can't do that today with the internet. And they're already there. So this is, that's a special era. Then you had uh, our times where it had went to radio now. It had progressed from cassette to the, now you have radio. And the radio 
was uh, not subjected yet to the influence of the major labels. So now it was if you just had a fly record or anything, they will play it. You know, no payola, no us, got to get them Nick tickets. And that was a special era. So we would do promos. Like we did bait for Red Alert. We did a, a, a thing for Chuck Chill Out, a thing for the Awesome Two on W. And all of these things were big and had to be pressed up into, into records. Uh, Bait was on Red Alert's uh, compilation album. Uh, I forgot where Chuck used the other prom. See, this that was a special era. That doesn't happen today. Because for one, you can't even get a promo played on radio. <laughs> that's how, that's the, even though that's why radio is dead now, you know, and people says, well, I can do it online. But you you understand what I'm saying? It was a special era. So you can take something literally that had no intentions of being that we were just putting it out as like a filler between the next single, you know, just to keep your you know, name out there. And it turns into records. So those are special errors and not too many groups can say that, you know, you know, it started really, I'll say with, the, uh, with the fearless four, they did a promo for Mr. Magic and that later became a record. So, you know, so. Yeah. I think the, yeah, that's a special error. It doesn't happen anymore. Dan, it's, uh, to your point, the last one, now that you're saying that, that I really remember that did it was much later, but was ludicrous. When he was on the radio, he did his promos, and they became songs through Timberland. Yeah. But that was the last that I really remember. After the Mohicans. What did you know, and how did it work as far as the promotions? Once Ego Trippin' came out, and then Funky, and the rest of the singles, did you guys start touring immediately and when did you start going overseas because this is 87 uh, we actually didn't go overseas until just about before the album deal was signed okay and then we finally went overseas tim westwood brought us out there and that was just like i can't even put that in words i can't seriously and uh we were loved overseas. See, overseas love hip hop, but what overseas appreciated because Europe has always been fascinated with the art of any music from America, being R&B, rock. They got into the technical, actual practices of it. So Europe understood that uh, the early rappers didn't have records they just had routines and stuff like that so when we came out there in europe and we incorporated a lot of the early influences from the groups like the cold crush and we would put the routines together but also do the records it was just like a phenom like uh we had a road manager at, when we were signed to uptown management his name was uh sugar dice now he didn't come initially with us but he, he didn't understand we had a following like that in Europe. So when he came out there later years with us, he said, yo, man, they love LL and Run, but they ain't act like this. And this was real because we gave them the full spectrum of hip hop. That's why they love like, uh, they love KRS like that. They love the artists who give them more you know, they, they love all the hip-hop, but they love you even more when you give them more. 
Right. Like, wow, where is that? That that's not a record, you know. And that's that's that was just phenomenal, you know. So uh that's when it started, like just before the album, just before we started recording the album, we went out there and it was just like uh it was so crazy. The crowd, the crowd was going so crazy. I've never experienced this. You couldn't even hear the music on the monitors. So when you saw the video of it, me and Keith was offbeat. Nobody, nobody knew, nobody cared. It was just mayhem, organized mayhem. Yeah. Well, that's interesting on many levels because I've talked to Keith and spent a lot of time with him over the years. And I remember him telling me that, at least for him, and I imagine it was for you too, but he was telling me that he never wanted to rap about <clears throat> what was going on because he wanted to escape it. And now you're telling me that story. I can't imagine, based on what Keith has told me and what you're telling me, being able to come from the Bronx and then go do a show in another country and people are like knowing all your words and it's like, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah, but see, like I said, what made it crazy was we couldn't hear nothing. That's how loud it was. We couldn't hear nothing. Right. So you just had to just guess where the beat was. It, it was funny, like, like if you'd have saw the tape, you'd have been like, "Why are they going crazy? These guys is way off beat." <laughs> gotcha. but it was going crazy, man. Well, you also had mentioned Uptown, which is something I wanted to get to. With the the first time I remember seeing Uptown logo on your guys' stuff was on the Ease Back single, and that single I wanted to talk to you about for a few things. But with Uptown in particular, that was the first time on Ease Back as a single, which came out before Critical Beatdown, that I noticed Uptown's logo was on your guys' material. So you had signed the management there, or what, what was the arrangement? Yeah, we were signed the management. Uh, and it was weird because, like, uh, at that time, Rush, you know, Leo Cohen and them wanted to sign us. And we was going to sign with them which we should have but uh because we knew uptown was more of a new jack swing you know more polished but uh they, they had a guy who worked at uptown who was andre harrell's you know right hand man his name was jimmy jenkins aka jimmy love jay love and he was telling us like don't worry i'm gonna I'm look out for y'all directly won't be neglected but we signed the Uptown and it was funny because it was kind of similar to what happened to early what people call hip hop to where like uh, disco was the parents of rap and the disco cats wanted nothing to do with rap and not just the disco people in general, nobody wanted to be a B-boy or B-girl. So, at Uptown, we was like the bastard childrens of, you know, like as where rap was the bastard child of the disco DJs, we were like the bastard childs of Uptown. You know, we were hard and, you know, they wanted that polished New Jack swing. And so it wasn't a good signing. We should have signed with Lior because like uh, Lior really loved that funky record. And he was telling us what he'd do. He was like, he would go as far as to pull us off the label if Eddie didn't do anything with the record. And this is why I appreciate Eddie O'Loughlin. As a man, he came to me years later and said, I'm so sorry I blew that record. Everybody was telling me. 
but I was so caught up because of salt and pepper phenomenon, I didn't see it. He saw it after Dr. Dre used it with Tupac on California Loving, but he had let that shit pass. You know, he just left it. You know, he didn't promote it. He just left it what it was, a weekend smash hit, club banger. He didn't take it to the next level, you know. He didn't you know, send it into rotation and stuff like that. Well, of course, EPMD used it as well on Nick Cat. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, so, on the one hand, how do you feel when people are using similar samples, like EPMD uses it, and then Dr. Dre uses it? Does that give you satisfaction? Is it frustrating? Is it both? Is it everything? Well, it's a little everything, but but really, see, when you're dealing with a sample, see, that's why I used to laugh at people in hip hop when people try to claim samples. Because <laughs> it's not your music anyway. You didn't make fucking beat. <laughs> you know, if anybody, Joe Cocker should be upset, you know. You know, so I'll be laughing at stuff like that, you know, when, you know, like, uh, there was somebody who would say something like, yeah, they use my samples. Like, that's a piece of president. How the fuck is it your samples? <laughs> you know, so. I've, I've always wondered that, too, because of the fact it's not your music. But then beyond that, the beauty of the different intonations of it, the incarnations of it is that what you did with it, what EPMD did with it, what Dre did with it are three totally different things. And it's based on the same music or inspired or sampled or whatever, but it's not sonically, thematically, lyrically, stylistically, it's all totally different. So I've always, I, I like knowing the chronology of who used it, but I never am like, oh man, it's terrible because they used the same sample because of what you just said. It's not even your music. Yeah, but see, like you said, sonically. Sonically, there was only three groups that made the music sonically the way we did. Well, really two, we made the third. That was Boogie Down Productions, of course. My late brother, Scott LaRock. And then... Uh, Wu-Tang. All of our stuff was very, very in your face. Dirt. Hard. Everybody else would be a little more, the sound was a little more polished, you know. But we, you know, and that's why Wu is still, you know, loved around the world. You know, we had that real sound, you know. Absolutely. Like I said, that's what makes it good today is that you can get that real sound and add effects on it and it doesn't change it. Like, like it takes it to, it, it puts it, if you know what you're doing today, you can take what we did back then and make it sound like it's, like it's uh, in your living room. Like we're actually there. That's how good the effects have gotten today. Yeah. Now, You've just brought up a whole bunch of stuff, but I want to make sure I don't forget to ask you this before we go. Keep going. Um, with Ease Back, speaking of samples, Terminator X to the Edge of Panic had that same uh, foundation, per se, sample-wise. So, uh, and that's, of course, Public Enemy, Lior Cohen. But did um, with that, that one came a lot closer because Nick Knack, Patty Wax a couple years later, Dr. Dre's more than a decade later. When it's... Um, did you guys find DJs or whatever using Eastback and then Terminator X to make it play together or? Well, what it was was 
what it was was uh <clears throat> I forgot the name of the James Brown record. <clears throat> but it was actually the same sample they used on uh Rebel Without a Pause. They reversed it. Reversed. Right. So we had it. They dropped it first. And since Public Enemy was known for using our samples, we said, well, fuck it. Let's just not even use the, the raw sample. Let's take the actual sample from off of their record. <laughs> okay. That's what we did. That's great. One of the things with Uptown that I was always curious about was through the management. Is that how you got to work with Finesse and Quest? Yeah. So what, um, what do you think that you brought out of them versus what Eddie F did since you ended up doing about half, a little more than half the album? Yeah, but see, that was the thing. Once again, we're getting into the two sounds. What I actually did for them was changed up. They tried to make my hard dirt sound clean and they put reverb on a lot of stuff and I wound up not liking it because it took the edge off of it. <clears throat> but they tried to, I understood what they were trying to do. They was trying to make the album work, you know, sonically. It was like, it was just two different worlds. One side was polished New Jack Swing and then the other was Wu-Tang Ultra meets Vanessa sequence. So they tried to, they told her, behind my back. That was the first time somebody ever did something behind my back without telling me. Hmm. Like, uh, even when we was on uh, Mercury and they brought in solid productions to put more stuff on the songs, which I never liked, they told us. You know, it wasn't like they just did it and we heard it and said, oh shit, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> That's what it literally was with, uh, like, a. Uh, we had so many records that if they would have left alone, them girls might have had a chance to get some hardcore play, but that guess, you know, it is what it is. They just changed the sound. So is that why it doesn't say said G it has your name on it? Uh I don't know why, but everybody knew I did it, but <laughs> Huh. Yeah. It's interesting because I always thought that they had I always thought they had a lot of potential, man. They were like, they had a lot of versatility as far as what they could rap over. And they could, you know, they had a good look, they could dance, they got a look, they had everything. And they were on a label that was doing well, so. Well, that's what I'm saying. They should have just, you know, even though they still listed it as two different sides, they should have just, you know, left it alone. Let one side be clean, let the other be dirty, you know. Right. Though, but they wanted to try to make it comparable, and I was like, "What the hell?" I I I didn't even like it anymore. Wow, it was just a whole nother. Like I said, uh, see, if they had did that today, it would have worked because, like I said, the effects are better. But the effects, like when you put excessive reverb reverb on certain sample snares, they don't they lost the meat. Everything lost the the real meat. It was too watered down, and it made it sound watered down. Gotcha. So then, this is 88 with Vanessa Sinquist with the Soul Sisters album. So at this point, sometimes you're with Ultramagnetic, of course, you're rapping on songs, sometimes you're just producing, sometimes you're working with you know, people you, you were with, like Skylar Rock, sometimes it's Vanessa Sinquist, more business. What ways did you see 
how what you did changed, if at all, in these different arenas. Sometimes you were rapping, sometimes with women, sometimes with, you know, who you're rolling with. Well, after that, uh, you had a bunch of producer rappers, you know, from my boys, Pete Rock. Uh, you know, you had a bunch of them. A lot right. of rappers started producing and rapping after that. That was the thing they saw. Like I said about everything, they saw that there was no rules. There was no rule that said you can only produce or you can only rap or you can only write. You can do it all, you know. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, like I said, uh, uh, Chris, well, I remember one day we was in Power Play. We was working on his ex, Ms. Melody. Bless her. She moved on. And he told me that's the day he wanted me to show him how to use SB12. He said, believe it or not, one day I'm going to be doing all this by myself. So, so everybody learned that you didn't have to be constricted to X, Y, Z, that you can do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting nobody. Well, so that was the biggest influence. You know, I removed the barriers. You can rap, you can produce, you can damn near, you can put the record out. You can do it all. Well, I was gonna, like I said, you have Master P, just, it's a bunch of people. Yeah, Schooly D did it too. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's always interesting uh, because of that versatility. And then, um, uh, speaking of uh, controversial stuff with the Tim Dog album, which kind of comes soon thereafter, mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing is since you're sound and working on Criminal Minded, you had been in that rugged, rough, what would later be gangster rapish sound or feel or vibe. And then with Tim Dog, even though I would argue he said he was against it, a lot of it sounded like the same thing other than he was going after it. So was that, what was the mindset sonically for what Penicillin on Wax became? Well, like I said, those were people who understood the ultrasound. So when we, initially started the project up in Calapi in New York, the late great Calapi Studios. Then we finished it up at Studio 4 in Philly with Joe, Joe the Butcher, who was maybe, I don't know if there was another greater rap engineer than Joe the Butcher up in Philly. But uh, they knew the sound and they kept it there. You know, with Joe, I didn't even have to say anything. Joe just knew how I like my stuff to sound. So there was never a surprise with Joe. I, I could literally just leave a record with Joe, go out, do what I do and come back and say, give me a cassette, you know? So it was like a more of a magic. And to be honest, Tim really wasn't with it. He was not lying. What happened with that was that, uh, you know, after we did Chorus Line, I was shopping Tim for a solo deal. So when we got to Sony, uh, the guy who was the head of A&R over there, he, his name was Kurt, Kurt Woodley, a.k.a. Kurt Juice. He used, to, he used to be at Uptown before Andre replaced him with Puff. But uh, so Kurt said, yo, sad. I'm going to tell you how we're going to get Tim a deal. Take that same chorus line beat, do whatever you got to do with it, and have him dis the motherfuckers from Compton, and I'll get you a deal. So I told Tim, yo, you got to diss them. 
he getting a deal and Tim went in and dissed him. The rest is history. Number one rap record for two months in Billboard, which NWA tried to suppress. They tried to act like it never happened. But number one record, two months, Billboard, number one. So what, to you, is that more, uh, you just did this, the record as a business thing or you agree yeah. with it was a business thing. Okay. You know, there was some animosity because at the time the West Coast was taken, but that wasn't the real, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't the real driving force. It was, we're trying to get you a deal. They said, if we do this, you got a deal. It was like, for instance, when uh, Suge Knight bailed Tupac out of jail. He said, Tupac said, I don't know how I'm going to repay you. He said, I'm going to tell you how you're going to repay me. You're going to diss the motherfuckers from the East Coast. This thing was orchestrated outside of all of us. You know, it was something that uh, a group of people decided they wanted to show that, uh, you know, brown men can't get along no matter what their situation is. And that's what they portrayed to the world. Plan was fully executed. They murdered everybody involved. Simple. <laughs> regular, regular earth business. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Because I, uh, on the one hand, I thought, like, the production and what you guys did on that record was really good. On the other hand, I didn't like a lot of what was being said because I didn't think it was warranted, mainly. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But it was all orchestrated. It wasn't, like... It wasn't like we sat down and said, hey, let's diss them, you know. It was, I can get you. Matter of fact, not only did they give us the deal, <clears throat> for us to even put it together, we were given the demo deal. You know, they gave us a budget to go in the studio and get it all done. So what? Uh... Hold up, hold up, hold up now. Here's another one. It's not just this the West Coast. You remember the B-side going wild in the P now? we were told to make a prison record. <laughs> we were told to make a prison record. And what was the purpose of that? I don't do have to ask the people whose intentions that was. I guess that was where they was, that's where they was taking rap because later you had NWA. You, you follow, that's where they was taking rap. They was taking it from where hardcore was just considered clever rhyming, they was taking that into actually a genocidal mode. You know, taking out your brother, you know, your sister ain't shit. You know, that's what it became. They were taking it there. That was the beginning of the, when they took the variety out of rap. And it hasn't returned since. And if I'd have known better, I wouldn't have participated. Wow. So it's interesting because uh, I've interviewed and talked to Karis one a number of times over the years, and he told me he uh, once Criminal Minded was done, his obviously his lyrics and his direction changed dramatically, but poetry was still on there, and we still saw some glimpses of it. So why? And for a long time, Boogie Down Productions and Public Enemy and 
Brand Nubian and X-Clan and Poor Righteous Teachers, all these groups that were positive or pro-black or, you know, Afrocentric were very popular. So why do you think the, when Karis one changed and it was him as the center, really the second album on, why do you think then Boogie Down Productions got even more popular and even bigger when they were being, when you must learn and why is that and my philosophy and stop the violence and self-destruction? Well, it's like I said, uh, you had a group of people who wanted to present a certain image of brown people to the world. So every rapper saw that if you went in this direction, there was rewards. You know, just like I just told you, they said, you know, he was saying he liked him and everything, but he can't get him a deal. But I can get you a deal if you do this. Gotcha. And I said, hey, Tim, let's do that. And then what was uh, what was the long layoff between Critical Beatdown and Funk Your Head Up for Ultramagnetic? Uh, it was like we were we were done. We said uh, enough of you just putting the record out and letting it sell on his own, because that's what Next Plateau literally became. He knew he can he can press up a couple of hundred thousand copies and just drop them out there and they sell, and he makes money without spending any money. And we said enough of that because we wanted to go. So you had the contracts, you know, on and going and forth and so forth. And then you had a rogue manager in between. So it was just all contractual. Hmm. And then were you beyond Ultramagnetic, beyond Finesse and Sinquest and beyond Tim Dog? were you doing a lot of stuff that didn't get released for other artists or was you focusing on in-house stuff mostly? Uh, I actually, I actually, yeah, I was doing all types of stuff. If you look around, there was a lot of stuff on Tough City I did. Uh, right. Uh, all this, all this in uh, Philadelphia, you know, it was stuff, you know. You know, like I did stuff with like the Mighty Mike Masters, uh, you know, Grandmaster Kaz, uh, well, I meant, uh, I'm sorry, I meant more in the 90, 91, 92 era after yeah, all. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That was that, was, that, was that time. I did stuff oh, wow. with Crown Rulers, Tough Crew in Philadelphia, Larry Lair, Philadelphia. I mean, well, Larry Lair, remember, he used the same sample as Chuck the Ron before Tribe did. Yeah. Those horns. So that's what I'm saying. So I, I, it, was, it was around, you know, just that. Uh, the industry became what, I, like I, what I said, it became who had the more influence to get stuff played. That old policy of uh, if the record is good, we'll just play it. That left hip hop, I'll say, in in ninety one. That was the end of that. Yeah, eighty one. Let me take correct that. Eighty one. <laughs> yeah, it did. See, because it was a different era because they was just launching on radio and there weren't a lot of rap records and these guys had an hour, two hour show and they had to fill the slots so they were just looking for something good to play then when everybody saw it was profitable and now it went from we're just looking for something good to play and now you got 10,000 records on your desk 
what are you going to play? So the guys who had the extra envelope or some Nick tickets, their stuff got attention. It was just impossible for those guys to play or even go through all that material. Right. You know. Okay. We, we as artists would like it, but it's just impossible because I knew that from when I started working A&R at A&R the Next Plateau. And Eddie would just give me a box of tapes to take home. I'd be like, I ain't listening to all this shit. It's just impossible. No, I know. Yeah. I, there's more more music than you could ever listen to. Yeah. And what happens if when you start listening to it like that, you can hear the greatest record, but because you've listened to 10 million songs, your ears are numb. It'll just sound like another record. Like, okay. You know, cause you <laughs> so... It's impossible. It's something that uh, should have never happened in music. It should have been always like, you know, see, economically it wouldn't have worked, but you had to at least have a, like a, Eddie tried it. He had like a five of us as A&Rs, but you needed, you know, Eddie and Tommy Boy, they would do stuff like that. Get a bunch of A&Rs because they understood. And uh, this is why those were two of the more successful independent labels can't have one and two people you know can't do that when uh papa large came out and was doing so well um how did that change the trajectory of the group in your opinion well actually papa large was a another story or see uh once again it's like how ultra does stuff how we always did stuff Cool Keith brought the Prince record Bat Dance over to me. And he said, yo, say, hook this up. This is when I had moved to Philly. And we hooked up the Prince, Prince Bat Dance record. It was so crazy. That would have probably been our biggest record ever. Wow. Yeah, it was hard and it was commercial. And it was Papa Large. But what happened was, being that it was Prince Samples, we went to Prince for clearance and Prince didn't want half of the song. He didn't want three quarters of the song. He wanted all of the song. <laughs> so I was so disheartened. I said, ah, and they said, okay, we're going to bring in uh solid productions. And I really didn't like the solid production version, but when they brought in the beat misers to do the Papa Laws, that was, that was ultra, you know, it was hot. You know, they, uh, I didn't like, like I said, I didn't like what Mercury Records did, uh, adding solid productions to Ultramagnetic album. And that's one of the albums I hate is our second album, Funk Your Head Up, because there's an element on it that shouldn't have been there. See, like if you see on Four Horsemen, we brought in Godfather Don. We loved his sound. Paul C was on Critical Beatdown. It's not that we weren't, you, you understand what I'm saying? They brought in guys that it was just unrelated to Ultramagnetic, and they messed up a lot of songs to me. Well, uh, it's interesting you say that because I thought Four Horsemen was so much better than Funk Your Head Up. Um, yeah, it, it was super better than Funk Your Head Up. And that Four Horsemen, man, that, that album is uh, phenomenal to me. So with this, the saga of Danny the Devil and Day in particular, 
that's one of my favorite songs on there because, um, you know, my dad was really into baseball, still is, but he taught me a lot about the Negro Leagues as a kid and, you know, <clears throat> different stuff. So hearing that song and, you know, at this point reading about and having known a little bit about it, it was like a soundtrack, a history lesson uh, of sorts. So do you remember how and why you guys decided to make that song? Uh, once again, uh, it was something we didn't oppose. Uh, it, was a, it was suggested by Stu Fine. Really? Okay. Wow, pitch. Yeah, he said, uh, y'all guys ever thought about doing a dedication for the Negro Leagues? And we was, you know, it, he didn't say do it. He said, have y'all ever thought about doing it? Because he was saying, because that's the time when they was talking about doing the Hall of Fame. He was saying, you know, these guys, they need a little uh, little support. So uh, we went ahead and did it. Uh, did you ever get a chance to hear the remix to that? I did. Whew. Godfather Don went in on that. That's one of my all-time favorites. No, it's... Sax so captures the attitude of that record. Sick. And I think too, the the force and the passion that you guys have on there, and the pride, I thought was like so powerful, and um, just a lot of the players you mentioned, some of whom I had heard of, but a lot of them I didn't, so I was able to look them up, you know, and so that I just always love that song, and and when people realized how uh, Satchel Paige and some of these guys have been playing for years decade and then come in and just smash the major leagues still when they finally get their chance it was uh it was just a great song man so i'm just glad and appreciative that you guys did that yeah uh like i said it was something like right now somebody came to me with a great idea that's why like you said you heard it in the voices it was a great idea you know it was something that just needed to be done and it's something that uh i feel could resurface at any time it's that type of record you know uh all it takes is somebody to say hey i want to do a story on that and boom they pull that up so well, we're, that's we're why you do it now. <laughs> yeah. yeah now baseball the day troops <laughs> it was you know it was uh but see now that le record is out of uh is baseball is racial again. They practically removed us from baseball. True. You know, so, you know, I said baseball today, Troop, is mostly non-racial, not anymore. So, you know, it's the dynamic of business and it's what it is. But you did say give them a Hall of Fame and at least we got that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's positive. Um, and then that song, too, as you guys did uh, throughout your guys' career, you and Keith had a great, I thought, great chemistry on that record. But that one was a little more, again, passionate. But it also had more of a, even though you did it, I also think the tag teamness on that song in particular was yeah. very special. Um, arguably as good, if not better, than any uh, critical beatdown or any single. So... What was it about the recording of it that stands out or that really was so different? Well, we did it at a, 
Godfather's Don's house, you know, was mixed that power play. But we did that Godfather's Don house. And I think it was a little more passionate with that record because we actually got to speak to a couple of those old players. Oh, wow. Yeah, Stu Fine uh, had them on, on, on speakerphone down at uh, Wild Pitch Records, and we got to speak to them. And their enthusiasm that somebody's going to talk about it, you know, I guess carried over. You know, when you, you know, when you're touched, it's easier to do something, you know, because now it's, it becomes a passion. And like I told somebody, it's, it's a difference between a passion and an idea. An idea is something you might try, right? But if it's not going well, you say, oh, well. I tried, it didn't work. A passion is something that when you meet resistance and we, uh, it depends on your level of the passion, you're gonna just keep going because you're not trying to have it not happen. That's the difference between a passion and an idea. An idea is something you try, a passion is something most people with real passions wanna see happen so they're gonna put whatever they got to do in it to make it come about. That's the difference. So it became more of a passion than just an idea, a good idea. Yeah, as you can tell, I love that song. <laughs> so it's a great one. And another song on that album was the Delta Force 2. And that one, I was so interested because of the Tim Dog stuff, how you say, I'm going to keep gangster rapping. Uh, so what what did that mean to you at that time and why did you say it? I just said it because honestly, like I said, as a a producer, if you listen to that Delta 2, there's so much happening. It's amazing. It's organized confusion and and it's just incredible. Especially at the end of the record where that shit comes in. I'm like, what the and I wasn't high. <laughs> Go like, figure. Huh? Go figure. <laughs> um, record was, I mean, it was just so much happening on that record, you know. And uh, that's why I loved it. I, you know, the, the mainly with the lyrics, it was more so just doing something different, flowing on it. Because the record itself was just, Maybe we, maybe in the year 3030, people be ready for it. <laughs> I didn't make it for that time period. Well, I also liked, um, because now people shout people out all the time, and they used to back in the day, but I liked also how you shout out Rakim, because this was yeah, slightly yeah. past the golden era, but close still. So um, since you guys, you and him both have very distinctive styles, what today, looking back, what makes what Rakim did so phenomenal in your opinion? Because this is what Rakim did, and people didn't understand it. Up to Rakim, every rapper was screaming, you know, my Adidas, you know. And just like Rakim, when he tells a story about how he did that would be for president, sitting down and Molly was like, oh, you should stand up. Rakim did what I just said. He broke all the rules. 
He said, I'm not going to scream. I'm not even going to talk in a regular tone. I'm going to be like I'm laid back sitting down on my couch. And when it came out, it was just so different that it shook up the world. Like he literally changed what people called hip hop, you know, and it was phenomenal, you know, and that's, you know, you everybody's screaming. This guy comes back to the point where Molly Mars demanding that he stands when he do the, see, he just, and that's what made it special was because it was truly him. And he had a passion. He was going to do it his way. See, if it was an idea, and Mars said, hey, you're going to stand up, he would have stood up. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to Unique Access with Soren Baker. I appreciate your guys' support. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and however you guys checked out this episode of Unique Access with Soren Baker. Also, if you haven't already, please pick up the copies of my two most recent books, The History of Gangster Rap and The Gucci Man Guide to Greatness with Gucci Man. You can find both of those books on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, at the independent bookstore near you. And of course, you could also check them out at your library. And if any of those places don't have them, please request them. And most importantly, thank you so much for listening to Unique Access with Soren Baker, however you listen to us. And please subscribe so we get into your feed. Hit us with that like and hit us with the five stars, 10 stars, 100 stars, whatever's the highest they got on this platform. But we appreciate your guys' support and look forward to you checking us out on the next episode.